0: Hello and welcome to Zero Net Fifty. I'm Jennifer Deloney, and with me, as always, is Joel Stronberg. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. Hey. So I understand that there was some action this week from the Select Committee. Did you hear about that?
1: I did. Um, they had their first. They had their first hearing uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, the star witnesses of the uh, of the hearing were actually three youth, um, including Angie Piper. Uh, who's one of the plaintiffs in the Juliana case, Um, Kathy Castor, who's the chair of the uh, select committee, um, wanted to give credit to the youth movement um, for having stimulated as much conversation since the uh, end of the, or since the uh, elections as it has. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a very fitting sort of uh, uh, tip of the hat, I think, to, to the youth movement. Um, the ranking minority member uh, Garrett Graves uh, from Louisiana um, was not was not defensive and um, perhaps maybe a little acidic if you will. Um, the, the youth witnesses talked a lot about um, the world from their point of view. I mean why are they engaged in this? I mean what are they worried about? what do they think the, the government should do? Um, and in some ways I think they were given pretty softball questions, which is fine. I mean this is This is really more of a messaging um, activity, I think, than anything else. Um, Graves and the Republican minority members, um, like I said, they weren't they weren't harsh to the to the witnesses. They did ask them as often as they could what their particular um, suggestions were for how do we get out of the situation that you say that we're in. And this Mm -hmm. this is something that, that, um, you know, has been following the Green New Deal. Um, through all of this, um, and is going to be continuing to be the lever that the Republicans are going to play on that. Um, but again, it was it was somewhat cordial. Um, Castor has also announced she had indicated, for example, that that they are a fact-finding committee. I think that I've mentioned before mm-hmm. that unlike a standing committee, say Energy and Commerce, the Select Committee cannot uh, propose or vet legislation and then. Um, move along the committee hearing, the committee cycle um, with a recommendation for floor votes. So they're fact finding, and that's what Castor is is really emphasizing. She's also indicated that they that she intends to have hearings outside of D.C., which I think is uh, is great. Not only from the environmental uh, point of view and the climate point of view, but it again it kind of reinforces the fact that the Democrats are trying to send a message out with this. One of the things that um, was kind of illustrative of what the situation is Castor has actually proposed has, has now submitted um the first democratic bill on climate it's hr 9 um, which is called the climate action now act mm. um, basically what it does is it um commits it, it commits the continuing membership um of the united states on the paris accord obviously it's not going to go very far but um, but it will get through the house. She also has been called within the legislation, there's also a call for uh, increased uh, targeting of uh, ever more uh, levels of reductions in in uh, carbon and uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, the other I think interesting point about the act is that they do actually reference um, the problems with India and China that that Trump makes so much of and that it's kind of become part of the uh, the Republican uh, dogma when it comes to talking about climate. And right. in the act itself, um, it's indicated that the U.S. will use the Paris Agreement's transparency provisions to confirm that other parties um, are fulfilling their, their promises. Um, Again, there's, I mean, there's nothing you can do about it if they're not actually because, I mean, the the situation is not that there's any enforcement within the accord, but it certainly does kind of carve out a position that is certainly counter to Trump's, but also indicate that not everybody in the United States is against the Paris Agreement. Um, she has this act, but it's being her proposal has has now gone through the Energy and Commerce Committee, and she kept leaving the Select Committee hearings yesterday. To attend the climate, to, to attend the Energy and Commerce Committee hearings, um, and I, I think what it does is kind of illustrates the fact that the Select Committee is going to be a secondary um, source of uh, major activity for uh, both the Democrats and for well, the House of Representatives. Um, also in the House, uh, it's been a busy week. The Green Real Deal resolution has now Green been in.
0: Real the, Deal. Okay, good.
1: Right. And the Real Deal is, is almost a, um, a shadow of the Green New Deal, except that it takes uh, the, the position of what the United States needs to deal with the climate problem, and it admits that there is a climate problem, um, is more innovation, more research. Um, And this also has become, I think, a a major uh, plank in the Republican rebuttals to the Green New Deal, that we can innovate our ways out of this. The the really interesting part of this is that the the sponsor, one of the sponsors, actually the major sponsor, is Representative Matt Gates from Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, The co-sponsor in that is Francis Rooney, who's also from Florida. Gates, however, is probably as close to a Trump clone in the House of Representatives as you're going to find, except for the fact that he believes that history is going to judge Republican climate deniers harshly. Those are his words, not mine. I mean, mm. this is a direct quote. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and it, it, it's interesting to see to see how there's some separation now going on in, within the Republican ranks um, as to what what can be discussed, what should be discussed. Um, and, and they're distinguishing themselves certainly from the White House. Um, although even in that regard, the, the, there's a rumor in Washington. There's always a rumor in Washington um, right. that the Trump re-election committee has actually put out a call for climate victories that he can claim to, during the, uh, his re-election campaign. Oh. I mean, part of me wants to say good luck with that. Yeah. Um, And and the other thing is, I mean, this is the same this is the same committee that supports the president who this week said that the noise from wind uh, wind machines causes cancer. Um, And I mean, how this all washes out is going to be very interesting. I I think the unfortunate part of the of the Green Real Deal resolution is that it's going to get gamed pretty much the way the Senate. um, uh, resolution on the green new deal um went out too i mean the the even even if the democrats were in favor of more research which they are um they're not going to give gates and the republicans the satisfaction of showing any kind of support for this so i mean i think that what we have is um wh- what we're seeing is continuing acrimony rather than matrimony as far as the the sides are concerned um mm-hmm. on, on both in the house and the senate the republicans have also seen set up an action team it's called the house energy action team Um, and it was set up by the minority leader uh, steve scalise also from louisiana Um, and what it is basically is uh, it's a gang of republicans uh, so uh, i mean that's somewhat pejoratively i guess but it's a gang of republicans who are who are going to make it their business to answer the gang of democrats um and again, what we're gonna see is more organized conflicts. But I think that that too is also a reflection of the fact that the conversation on climate has really stepped up a great deal um, compared to where, where it was in the last Congress. Um, and again, going back to Castor's um, tip of the hat to the youth, I think that that's, I mean, I think that's absolutely correct. On the budgets and appropriation side, the Democrats are unlikely to come up with a budget resolution. Um, the way this usually works is that appropriations have to start on the House side by by the Constitution. The concept is that it's 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 the the chamber of the people, if you will. And when it comes to the people's money, that the House should be the one that initiates the action. Um, usually, what in a normal year, which normal. Probably hasn't last hasn't the last time normal was in Washington on budget matters or 25 years ago maybe Uh, okay Um, and so what happens is that they come up with the the House comes up with a budget resolution that kind of gives you a an overall idea of how much they have to how much the government has to spend and 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 allocations Um, but it's not it's not necessary actually I mean the appropriating committees. Um, can actually do that themselves in conjunction with the authorizing communities uh, committees. And the reason that the budget resolution is not going to be uh, um, is not going to be passed um, even on, even though the Democrats have control of the House is that um, the leadership doesn't have control of uh, the Democrats entirely, especially when it comes to to monies to money matters. And um, Pelosi in her very, Wise, I think, in, in diplomatic way, um, is going to keep conflicts from from escalating into into the press. So if there is no budget resolution, then maybe there's no conflicts, or at least it's arguable what they're what they're arguing about. Um, there have also been so the appropriations committees are going to do this. The the places where they're going to focus on is, I mean, EPA's budget has been cut by is proposed as being cut by 30 percent. Um, and even Republicans are, are, are not willing to do that. Um, the DOE um, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Program is cut by 70%. Um, I mean, it goes from $2.3 billion, I think, down to $700 million, something like right. that. And it has plans to undo, to, to basically defund the ARPA-E project, which oh, is wow. the uh, civilian side of the DARPA kind of approach to um, innovation, which, of course, conflicts with what uh, Matt Gates was doing with his resolution. So I think that will happen uh, when all the dust settles on the budget stuff. Um, I think there's just going to be a continuing resolution this year like there has been in other years, because the, not only is, are there conflicts within parties and, and, and across parties, um, but the fact of the matter is the closer we get to election, the less likely they're going to be to, um, one side to help the other uh, look better, if you, if you will. So mm-hmm. I think what will happen is, um, is, again, a continuing resolution. The other thing that, that popped up that I've been looking at and clearly is going to have a, a, an impact is that there's a, there's a void kind of being created now with the Green New Deal. And so these other proposals that have been kind of on the edge, at least since the Green New Deal has been talked about, like carbon taxes, um, are really starting to gain some momentum. And so this week, 100 House Democrats wrote a letter to the House Ways and Means Committee um, talking about the need for carbon taxes and their support for carbon taxes. They're even suggesting in the letter that perhaps a tax package could be created that um, where carbon is taxed and extension of wind and solar production um, and investment tax credits become a package. Um, I don't know how that, I mean, I, I think carbon taxes are going to have a problem when all is said and done. I mean, I know that yeah. there's a lot of momentum, but um, there's also a lot of conflict. And and even in Canada this week, um, the, the consumers have been roiled by um, the Canadian tax on, on carbon mm-hmm. um, because for the same reason the Washington um, state voters uh, turned it down. Uh, consumers don't like paying. This extra, and I don't think anybody's actually come up with the formula that is going to satisfy all the detractors. Um, obviously, I don't know this for a fact, but um, this year, for sure, um, this isn't going to happen. The other thing, too, is that I've got I've gotten some indication that um, even the wind and solar industry doesn't seem to be pushing perhaps as hard for tax extensions, their tax extensions. Right. I, I, they're they're going to take a neutral position on energy tax or on a, on a carbon tax. I, they would like mm-hmm. to see it, but they don't. I mean, they're kind of playing the middle. I mean, they're both conservative yes. because they're a business interest and they're they they're climate advocates because of what they produce. But mm-hmm. but make no mistake, they're industry. Um, and what they're looking for is um and uh, is to build out infrastructure the infrastructure that's needed um, to accommodate all the extra solar and wind. And, and I mean, people, people in the field you know, have seen that that's an issue that's been cropping pro- up a lot. Um, when people talk about, you know, can you go 100% renewables, like the Green New Deal suggested, um, without the infrastructure, the transmission um, infrastructure that you need to be able to do that. And uh, I think that uh, an article that I wrote a couple of weeks ago was on, you know, some communities don't want um, solar and wind farms uh, in their neighborhood. And part of the, the I don't want in my backyard sort of thing is because of new transmission lines, not just because of the, yeah. the facilities themselves. Yeah. Um and so that that kind of sums up the house on the Senate side. The quick the the, the quick and dirty is that um, the Majority Leader uh, McConnell um, has now pushed the nuclear button as far as nominations are concerned, um, at least below the cabinet level. And the the rule now is that um, there are it used to be the 30 hours was assigned for a vote. Um, for the chamber to decide on a nomination, um, which also allowed for filibustering and delay tactics and what have you. And now it's been cut down to two hours. Um, And not only has it been cut down to two hours, but it can be closed on a simple majority vote. Uh, Ordinarily, it's a super majority of 60 that's required. And what we're seeing is um, the continual ramp down Of these kind of protective rules, they have historically been protective of um, kind of extreme actions by one party or the other. I mean, the the Democrats used this; had their had their um, time to to push the nuclear button during the uh, Obama administration for slow uh, for slow um, uh, processing of uh, his nominees for uh, in for the courts. Um, And now what's happening is this is the second time Republicans have done this in the Senate. Um, It means that a lot of judges um, reflective of the conservative Republican ethos um, are going to be put in place, as are a lot of these kind of sub cabinet level positions within the various agencies. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's going to make it you know, it's going to give him the him being Trump the uh, army that he needs to kind of carry through uh, a number of things that are going on and that are also going to be reflected ultimately in the court cases. So
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: kind of my wrap up of the Washington week.
0: All right. Well, we need to draw you know, a line under all of that and, and get back to the question, you know, ultimately what happened with the Green New Deal, which was a couple of weeks ago. You know, does that mean it's dead? Is it, is that it for, for as it stood?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that as, um as a, as a being or as an integrated um concept, it is dead. I mean, it's, it, it's not going to happen. It's um, certainly not the way that, that was anticipated when people talked about the green new deal. Um, it's had tremendous value. However, I mean, uh, again, mm-hmm. that, you know, Six months ago, I mean, let alone a year ago, these kind of conversations were on the Hill were just not happening. I mean, I mean, even when a detractor um, like Gates, I mean, a very conservative, I mean, uh, how conservative is Gates? He wrote a a, a, basically a one-word bill that that um, deep sixed EPA. Okay, so this is, I mean, this is this is a guy that didn't want EPA that's now talking about. A green real deal, so right. um, so the question is I mean the parts and the pieces of the green new deal um, are still out there. Um, how they're going to be reassembled is going to be the sixty four thousand I guess with inflation sixty four million dollar mm-hmm. question that's going to be coming up. And I think that that's what we have to begin looking at between now and um, whenever. I mean certainly between now and at least the the nominating conventions. Um, In the summer of of 2020, as far as people's platforms are concerned, I am guessing, however, that the Green New Deal has, in fact, made um, Republicans sit up and take notice, if if not as a complete party, um, at least uh, for individual members of Congress um, who are running in districts that, uh, you know, lean blue or blue or red, depending on what the district is. And so I don't think you can over complement, if you will, what's happened um, largely again through the youth um, of having put this um, front and center uh, in a way that that was just unthinkable um, a few months ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well it's a good opportunity you know to backtrack just a little bit to at the time when the Green New Deal was still alive but dying. Uh, there was an interesting public airing of feelings that started with J. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon. Mm. Uh, he's on CNN saying things that didn't put the Green New Deal in a very positive light. and He basically suggested that a, quote, good path forward for a healthy environment is to not damage the U.S. economy in the process. But, uh, astute as she is, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted that, J.P. Morgan maybe wasn't the best authority on prioritizing the economic well-being of everyday people on the planet, given, of course, its settlement uh, for misleading investors about mortgages following the 2008 recession. So, you know, I thought that was astute of her, but, you know, two things of, of note about AOC and Jamie Dimon is Diamond reportedly was opposed to Trump's decision to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. You know, so J.P. Morgan Chase is, you know, it's not a fence sitter, but there are there's some back and forth with the company there. Um, but there were there was some grumbling in the Twitter sphere about Greenies criticizing other Greenies for not being green enough, and certainly that's a theme that we've seen crop up again and again.
1: Uh, it, it is, <laughs> and, and and we're going to see it. Continue to crap up. I think that yeah. that's one of the things that um, the the true believers of the Green New Deal um, are by no means settled with with what's occurring, and I think yeah. that they're now thinking about what's going to happen. And and so that's something. You're absolutely right. That's something that people should be mindful of going forward.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, there's also evidence that J.P. Morgan was a, a top donor to AOC and her campaign for the House. That she won in 2018, you know, it's only to the tune of about $3,000, not big money, but still uh, it's an interesting note, given her work on the Green New Deal and the bank's position on fossil fuels, which um, was her her tweet about JP Morgan was practically on the heels, like within hours of the release um, from the Rainforest Action Network in association with Sierra Club and a handful of other organizations For its Banking on Climate Change 2019 report, Mm -hmm. which names J.P. Morgan as the biggest fossil fuel financer globally, outpacing other banks on the list by this massive margin. Um, The report says that Canadian, Chinese, European, Japanese, and U.S. banks have financed fossil fuels with $1.9 trillion since the Paris Agreement was adopted, uh, and that And That's on a track of financing increasing every year, Um, but U.S. banks completely dominated that financing, and that's not a surprise. Uh, Other top bankers uh, for that fossil fuel industry are Royal Bank of Canada, Barclays in Europe, MUFG in Japan, and Bank of China. Um, but the report also identified banks that support the top 100 companies that are expanding fossil fuels, uh, mm-hmm. not not just ones that are in it, but they are they are actively expanding. Uh, and that group received $600 billion in the last three years, again, with J.P. Morgan at the top of that list. So, the, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was going to say, I mean, you know, th- this week there have also been rumors, or at least there's been some discussion that, that uh, Diamond was uh, – was or is actually considering running for president. Um, oh, the, I didn't the other hear thing, that. That, yeah, which which may have something to do with um, giving to AOC and others. The, the other thing that really th- this fits into is that um, over the last couple of weeks, um, Shell Oil um, has announced that they wouldn't be renewing their membership to the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is, mm. I mean, which is the a very ultra conservative um, group of of American businesses that you would think of. I mean, Shell Oil and uh, Chamber and stuff like that. But this also reflects other companies have started pulling out of it too, because of, because of their denial um, Mm -hmm. in climate science. And Mm -hmm. so, um, but by the same token, I mean, Shell Oil contributed millions of dollars um, to the uh, defeat the carbon tax in Washington state. And this is, this is something that other oil companies have been doing too, and so that they're they're the kind of paying something a pittance on the, on the climate side, um, mm-hmm. while still spending you know hundreds of millions, billions of dollars um, on continuing fossil fuels. And this is going to confuse things too, because you know the the auto industry, for example, is in favor of actual efficiency standards, and they're supporting electric vehicles. Um, not only is the Trump administration not doing that, but the opposers, the biggest opposers to the auto industry now are the oil companies um, for for the obvious reason. I mean, you can't, you know, they want their gas in your tank. I mean, um, but what we're seeing is, I mean, we're seeing movements here that, I mean, that are incomplete by by any um, interpretation, Um, but there's some movement. And now now to me, the question is, does that movement Cut off the more the more um, complete answers to climate change. You know, people say, well, these guys are moving towards this. So I guess we're doing OK. Um, right. And it's going to it's going to be an interesting dynamic. Um, and I think that we're at a we're at a junction um, in history um, of banks, politicians, the, the finance community um, of people having to make a decision which way they're going to jump and how fast they're going to make the jump.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the um, the Rainforest Action Network's banking report completely criticizes major global banks for for failing basically to set internal pathways for dealing with climate change. Uh, I mean, you look at the overall numbers and JP Morgan put 196 billion into fossil fuels over a course of two years through 2018. Um, and that makes it's its contributions are one third higher than the second bank, which is Wells Fargo. Um, but there are some notable outliers in the banking industry, you know, in in that slow shift to defund fossil fuels. And one of the biggest is World Bank. There there are maybe twenty all that have made some promises. But mm-hmm. World Bank said that the end twenty seventeen that it would no longer finance upstream oil and gas after this year, after 2019. And it hasn't put any money into new coal facilities in nearly a decade. Um, but we've seen consumers behind these big banking organizations trying to influence greater change, even though it's a it's slow progress. Uh, but the Securities and Exchange Commission just allowed Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo to block a shareholder proposal that requested that the banks reduce the carbon footprint of their loan and investment portfolios mm-hmm. so that they come into alignment with the Paris Agreement's goals. And that decision excludes the proposals from proxy materials so that the shareholders um, would have been able to consider it, but now they right. can't at annual meetings. And the SEC... Basically said that these proposals are a form of micromanaging. You know, and I appreciate some of that, but it's also um, something that we would expect from this administration. And
1: well, I'm- right, and and it, and it's something that you would expect from uh, any entrenched establishment, which yes. Um, uh, but you know, it's consumers, uh, consumer. I think that ultimately, consumer power with investor power is going to make a difference. I mean, the, the Fed, for example, has actually indicated that um, it wants to see companies um, and economists begin to factor in uh, the the impact of climate change. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's insurance companies that are already doing that. And so there's, there's this kind of slow rolling takeover, but it's not going to go easily. And even in the case of the World Bank, I mean, I I mean, 20 years ago, people were, I mean, me included, were, were pounding on the bank's doors saying, you know, stop funding these massive, and I mean massive, infrastructure um, projects that, that rely on, on, on coal, oil, and natural gas. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's, there's a book called um, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, um, which was written about the energy structure in the 80s and 90s. And the, the point sign of this is that, you know, it's in the interest of countries at the time, like the United States and in big banks to get to give easy credit to de- the developing world to buy into their established investments, coal, oil, gas, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's with the billions of dollars, the zillions of dollars, I, I don't know if zillion right. is an actual word, but <laughs> okay. um, yeah, that, that's, that's invested in this. It's going to be hard to pull this out. I mean, the, that's the real problem is with natural gas is this. I mean, it's been talked about as a bridge technology, but, you know, it's it's an expensive infrastructure and a, a bank or uh, is not going to put out, you know, billions of dollars for a natural gas infrastructure and then have it go away in six years. Mm-hmm. That to me is not a bridge. I mean, that's I mean, that's a paved highway into the future. Y- y-
0: yes, Exactly. Uh, Well, I just want to take uh, just a few minutes to look at or talk about data released on March 28th by the International Energy Agency. So Mm -hmm. they put out their um, global energy and CO2 status report with info on energy demand. And the report says the energy demand worldwide grew by 2.3 percent last year. Um, and demand for fossil fuels increased, with fossil fuels meeting nearly 70% of that growth for the second year in a row, um, which is just, you know, a, a stats that are in opposition to what we need. But right. a coal, but coal accounted for one third of total CO2 emissions last year, and bringing it back around again, to J.P. Morgan in 2016 part, it did make a pledge uh, to put to pull away from coal but within and that was i think their pledge was dedicated specifically to like greenfield coal mines but right within months it was helping private coal company peabody pull out of bankruptcy as part of a group of banks that put up about uh 1.5 billion dollars i think it Mm -hmm. was and all that money however doesn't change the market realities in the u.s in Wyoming, where Peabody is a major employee, the, uh, the employer, the coal market lost 153 jobs last year. It's a huge number. Um, yeah. And it, we, you know, we can we can talk about the U.S. market, the force behind growing coal use. However, can't be tagged here. It's primarily growing in Asia. Um, and so that's that's again that conversation that keeps happening between Democrats and Republicans about the U.S. responsibility, and doesn't matter what we do here, other developing nations are still growing, and are you know do we have to pay for offsetting that? You know, it's it's a really valid conversation.
1: Yeah, it is, but I mean there there are other things. Um, I mean, the United States and the administration can talk about well as long as India and China. Are doing what they're doing, then what 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 difference will yeah. anything we do make? Except yeah. for the fact that I mean, they send they send coal marketers um, to the UN climate conferences to peddle right. U.S. coal. I mean, right. so, great. I mean, we don't want to use it in our country, but you know, um, uh-huh. we'll send it on to Asia, and that I mean, that's something that they can stop doing. And it's yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that. Um, the Republicans are doing the same thing. The, the the, um, Garrett, the ranking member on the select committee um, actually took the position that a lot of the Republicans are taking, saying that, you know, we understand that climate is a problem, um, but you know, we can't, we can't just yank off the fossil fuel standard um, too quickly because there's so much invested, Mm -hmm. which I understand. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a valid point there, but the fact of the matter is if you keep investing billions and billions more, it's just going to make it that much harder to do that, and it's going to take that much longer. And whether it's 12 years or mm-hmm. 20 years, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is the clock has been ticking, and um, zero hour is going to come along before, uh, before people know it. And certainly, um, if we're going to stop it, we have to begin stopping it now. But these are, these are tough questions. I, I, I read this week that um, the Navajo Nation, for example, had tried in Arizona – um, to force the uh, regulators um, to keep a coal plant alive that nobody wanted, um, except it was a source of income to the Navajo Nation. Right. Um, and so, you know, where's the justice in there?
0: Yeah. I, I,
1: I, that's a question. I'm not, I mean, I think that this right. is a dilemma.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It
1: has to be discussed.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, let's just take a quick moment to wrap up. What are you working on? What's coming up on your desktop?
1: Well, actually, um, a couple of things are coming up. Uh, I'm going to continue the, the dialogue on what's happening in Congress and to see if I can answer um, more specifically the question of is the Green New Deal dead? Yeah. I'm also looking at a couple of legal cases. Um, one that was just filed this week uh, challenges the Trump's Trump's executive order for a two for one regulatory. Uh, the, for every new regulation, you have to come take two off the table. Um, and so that's coming back into the fore, obviously because there's some plans to use that executive Mm -hmm. order. Mm -hmm. Um, they, uh, Trump keeps losing, interestingly enough, in the courts, um, both on offshore drilling, which uh, the offshore issue is going to be a real, real hot one, not only in the courts, um, principally because the the Trump administration doesn't do what's required by way of environmental impact statements. So the, I mean, so that, they're getting cut off um, as far as offshore drilling, which which is going to attract uh, bipartisan uh, opposition. Um, and the same thing is happening with the pipelines. Um, and Trump is looking to do another executive order on on pipelines to make it easier. But the one that I'm really interested in is what's known as the our defense. Um, and what that's the difference a, what
0: that, Sorry, that's A U E R, Is that. Okay, good, good. And
1: it's kind of like a junior Chevron deference. The Chevron deference came up in the Massachusetts case that kind of set the Clean clean Power Plan and EPA's regulation of autos and everything uh, in motion. The Chevron doctrine says that when legislative language is um, fuzzy, that the agency... um, A deference will be paid to an agency's interpretation of it because they're the kind of professionals in all of this. Mm -hmm. The our defense deference uh, indicates that when a regulation is when a regulations language is fuzzy, that you defer to the agency uh, agency's interpretation, which sets up interesting conflicts, because um, if the language written by the Obama administration is fuzzy, does that mean that the Trump administration then has the right to just interpret it away or not? Um, mm-hmm. And my feeling is that if the, our deference is stricken by the Supreme court, which is where it'll end up, that it may in fact um, leave the Chevron deference vulnerable. Kind of think of this in terms of um, a chess piece that's protecting your queen. Um, right. If that chess piece, if the knight gets knocked off, then the increased vulnerability becomes could become calamitous. And mm. um, again, this is I mean this is a changing area of the law. So I'm going to I'm going to be looking a lot more at that, especially because so much is now in the courts um, when it comes to anything the administration is doing. But that includes anything that the executive agencies are doing as well.
0: Wow. Well, that's fascinating. So you'll uh, potentially release. Uh- an article on that next week on civilnotion.com. Yes, uh,
1: should uh, should um, I'm looking probably uh, Thursday, uh, end of the week.
0: Okay, um, great.
1: And to look for the kind of uh, more detailed of uh, today's conversation um, mm-hmm. earlier in the week.
0: Okay, great. Well, I guess that pretty much wraps it up for us. Uh, we solved the so, problems? Oh, yeah, we, we came close, yes. <laughs> oh, okay, uh, maybe so. maybe next week. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much to our listeners for joining us for this episode of Zero Net 50. Thank you, Joel, for your time today.
1: Thank you, Jennifer.
0: Uh, yep. Uh, listeners can tweet us questions or comments at hashtag ZeroNet50. And have a good day.